Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Erica Armstrong Dunbar, author of Never Caught. Erica Armstrong Dunbar, author of Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave, Ona Judge. How did you first find out about Ona Judge? Well, I was actually doing some research on the first book that I wrote, A Fragile Freedom. And um, I was in an archive and I was reading through old kind of newspaper reels, microfilm, and I came across an ad um, from 1796 noting a, the, the runaway of a woman or a person named Oni Judge. They called her Oni in the newspaper, and it was from the president's house. And I asked myself, okay, why don't I know this story? Who, who is this person, and what happened? And so it was actually doing work on the first book and thinking about the lives of, of black women in the North, specifically in, in Pennsylvania and in Philadelphia, that led me to the story of Ona Judge, which once I came back to it, I said, okay, well, this is interesting. I'll, I'll come back to this uh, story. And when I came back, I just couldn't, I couldn't get away. She wouldn't let me get away. And when you're plowing through old newspapers like that, is it like mind numbing or, because you have to go through a lot of stuff that is completely irrelevant to your research. Yeah, it's not necessarily mind numbing. It's hard on the eyes <laughs> when you're reading microfilm, but it's, um, actually, no, it, it kind of gives you clues about life in late 18th century America. So to read through, I don't know, uh, advertisements, it gives you an idea of what the cost for a barrel of flour would be in 1790. And it would, helps me understand then who could afford flour and how much. Um, it also sort of tells us more about kind of the material culture of America too, kind of what kinds of things were being shipped to Philadelphia, how much they went for at market. So not necessarily um, mind-numbing, but more it's work um, and requires a great deal of patience. So you had the name Oni Judge and knew that she was a runaway, and where'd you go from there? went all over from there. I really, um, I started uh, really from the beginning of her life. And uh, when I eventually found out that she was indeed someone who was enslaved by the Washingtons, um, the initial place to think about, of course, was Mount Vernon. Um, and of course, to think about George Washington's papers uh, and to check to see if he had actually written anything about her, if her name came up in any household account books and logs. And before I knew it, uh, there I was with her name, Oni, appearing here and there 
um, in a household account book for money for stockings or for a new bonnet. And um, so it helped me kind of understand uh, her age, the kinds of things she was doing in the household, where she was, and also began piecing together her life at Mount Vernon before she left Virginia. Now, uh, at Mount Vernon, how many slaves did George Washington have? Well, the combined between them, actually, George Washington had fewer slaves than, than did Martha. Um, Martha Washington was married before George Washington and her husband, uh, he died and left her a fairly well-landed, um, wealthy woman with a considerable number of slaves, so that by, um, by the late 1790s, there were over 300 enslaved people at Mount, at Mount Vernon. Um, and, but the majority of, of those enslaved people belonged actually to Martha. So George, was, George Washington was actually, um, he held, held over 100 slaves. He was a kind of, the time that he married Martha Washington was a kind of middling um, slave owner with some wealth, but it was actually Martha Washington who, who held, held the wealth in the family. What would life have been like for Ona on uh, Mount Vernon? Well, what I was able to track um, in terms of her life was that she grew up um, the daughter of an enslaved seamstress whose name was Betty. And um, she learned her mother's trade. So she learned, she became actually a, an excellent seamstress. Um, she lived a life that was probably similar to many of the other enslaved children, at least at Mount Vernon. She um, kind of made a way for herself until the age of 10 when she was called to serve in the house. So she was not uh, one of the other enslaved people working in the fields, growing tobacco later wheat or, or corn. Um, she was kind of relegated to domestic duties. Could she read or write? We know that she couldn't read or write until the end of her life. She says that um, she learns to read. We're never certain if she learns to write. Um, but it's clear that none of that was happening or, or being taught at Mount Vernon, that that happens much later in her life. So what were the Washingtons like as slave owners? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there are a lot of questions about that, in part because we know from George Washington's own hand that he had some kind of changing opinions or feelings about slavery over the, the course of his life. Um, I think they believed that they were benevolent slave holders. Um, uh, George Washington was known to, um, not known to necessarily be a an extremely violent slave holder. Um, however, he was not averse to punishing slaves or having them punished or corrected, as he wrote. Um, he, uh, he worked to keep his family, the families of enslaved people together, meaning on the estate of Mount Vernon, but there were, you know, five separate farms um, at Mount Vernon, so being kept together, having slave families um, stay together was something that um, could only happen if it benefited Mount Vernon. Um, so we know relatively little about his personal interactions with enslaved people. Um, he had one very um, 
relatively well-known uh, enslaved valet, William Lee, who um, served him for many years at Mount Vernon and then eventually went north with him once he became president. Um, so we know um, little bits and pieces about how he interacted with enslaved people. Martha Washington, we actually know less, in part because we don't have nearly as many records as we do about Washington or her opinion about the enslaved. What we do have um, suggests that she was a much, um, much more invested in the system of slavery much more invested in um, passing on uh, the legacy and the inheritance, the wealth that came with the inheritance of enslaved people. So, um, you know, the, as I said before, the Washingtons weren't necessarily known for being um, extremely uh, violent slaveholders. Nonetheless, they did, they did buy and sell slaves. They did punish slaves and, um, were relatively well-known slaveholders in Virginia. How old was Ona Judge? Well, oh, first of all, how did you get the name Judge? Judge, great. So um, one of the kind of distinguishing markers about Ona Judge is that she has a last name, right? And so when you look at um, the roster of enslaved people at Mount Vernon, the majority of them don't have a last name. So I said, who is Judge and what, why does she have a last name? Um, and what I was able to figure out was that there was only one other person at Mount Vernon with the last name Judge. And his name was Andrew Judge. He was a white indentured servant who had come, um, who eventually had made his way from England to uh, originally with Baltimore and then Virginia. He had his indenture purchased by Washington. And he came to uh, Mount Vernon around 1772. And he actually served as a tailor. So he uh, was in the business of, of garment making, um, as was Ona's mother, Betty, who was a seamstress. You say in your book that uh, he uh, made the uniform that George Washington wore to the, was it the First Continental sure, Congress? Yes, and, um, and many others, many other uh, kind of important outfits. He was. Um, uh, Washington wrote about him in, in his, or at least noted his name um, in some of his, his documents, his, his uh, account books. So we know that um, he was a, a kind of respected tailor, uh, clearly, and he was the only other person with the last name Judge. In all, not just in Mount Vernon, but in all of um, what becomes Fairfax County. And so um, that, in addition to knowing what the descriptions were of Ona Judge, it became very clear that she was mixed race. Um, she was described as freckled and very fair-skinned, and um, so those things made me feel very comfortable assuming that that was her father. Well, um, was, there, was there any pictures of her that exist? No, no images. I wish we did. Um, not even uh, sketches, but what we do have are um, descriptions of her, one from the runaway advertisements that appear uh, when she does take her leave. Um, and then later on, there's some uh, accounts that happen later on in her life, and then uh, afterwards that uh, people described what she looked like, and they're all, they're fairly consistent. Were the mother and father married? No. Uh, and yet, 
they gave the daughter the last name of the father. Yeah, which is really sort of interesting when we think about, well, this is an enslaved woman, uh, an enslaved black woman, and a white indentured servant. Now, we know that Ona Judge's status in life as an enslaved person followed her mother, but it's very interesting that she has this marker of a last name. And so it, of course, made me question, well, does he, did Andrew Judge want to claim Ona Judge? Did he want to claim maybe Betty, her mother? Um, and perhaps figure out some way after he worked off his indenture agreement to maybe make them a, a family, make them all a family. We don't know the answers to that, to those questions that I have, and that's part of doing the research on enslaved people, and in particular women. Um, there's so much that's not documented that sometimes it leaves us um, empty, and when we don't want, we want to have answers. Um, and so all what I could sort of figure out from, from records is that he eventually does leave Mount Vernon. He works off his indenture. He um, ends up having his own home. And in his home, um, there is a recorded uh, uh, a record of uh, a black person living in his home. It doesn't say whether or not that person's enslaved or not, but he, it's clear that he kind of goes on to create his own family and to live the life that all indentured servants were looking for once they left England um, to eventually find wealth and, uh, or at least a better life. And so it appears as though Andrew Judge left um, Ona Judge and Betty behind, but he left his daughter with the marker of a last name. How hard is it as a historian to know that you've got all you can possibly get for this book and or that the day the book is published you'll come across a <laughs> document that will change yeah, things? Yeah, that could change the story. No, it's, you know, I, for a lot of historians that might be nerve-wracking. Um, for me, it's exciting. I hope that in a month that there's a trunk of documents that are found in someone's attic that have all kinds of information about Ona Judge. Um, you know, this book is really, um, it's a starting point for understanding her life, and not just her life, but the life of uh, enslaved women in Virginia, in Pennsylvania, in New York, um, the life of a fugitive, and so we get to see um, the experiences of enslaved people through Ona Judge, and what makes her fairly unique is that this is all happening um, as she is a considered a piece of property belonging to the Washingtons. So, uh, of course, that makes her, her experience somewhat different, but honestly, what she encounters when she makes the decision to run away, the life that she lives is very similar, was very similar to what other fugitives experienced um, at the end of the 18th century, sort of looking into the 19th century. So I'm not, I'm not worried or nervous that other documents will be unearthed. I'm hoping that that happens because I think um, that that allows historians to build build these stories. And for me, someone who does early African-American women's history, um, that would just be a dream. That's, that'll be the revised version. Let me ask you about, you mentioned uh, her father was an indentured servant. What was the difference between an indentured servant and a slave? Sure. So indentured servitude um, 
was really a form of labor that was used to build the colonies. So the fact that Andrew Judge was uh, indentured in 1772 was actually kind of late. Um, to be indentured in 1772 uh, was not as sort of normal or commonplace as perhaps a century before it. Um, and, and typically what happened was that men and women um, gave over approximately seven years of their life, the indenture would, would differ, um, for the cost of passage over from England. Um, typically there were other requirements in the indenture. Perhaps you were taught to read or write, perhaps you were taught a trade, a skill, you were given housing and clothing that would be substantial for you and you would work for the person who owned your indenture. And you would work for that person um, for up to seven years. And you know, indenture agreements could be in their best forms, they could be a, a very decent way for people to make their way from perhaps not a great environment to the possibility for opportunity. In the worst case scenarios, and this was frequent, it could be long, abusive um, contracts in which men and women who entered into them never lived to see the end of their, their contract or their freedom. But the major difference between indentured servitude and slavery is that there was an end to it. Whereas by 1772, for the most part, slavery throughout the South, it was an inherited condition that unless you had a slave owner who, who emancipated you or set you free, it was something that held on to you for the entirety of your life. You write here about uh, in Pennsylvania when slavery was being phased out, many whites in Pennsylvania acknowledged that abolition was a fait accompli, so to slow it down, slave owners emancipated their slaves and indentured them for lengthy periods of time. Yeah. So they could do that. Instead of them being freed, they could lock them in for seven years? Yeah, and we, we see this in Pennsylvania. We see this actually longer than seven years in, in some places. We see um, in Pennsylvania and New York, uh, gradual abolition acts that are passed. And basically, what it does is allow for slaveholders to hold on to their property, what they've invested their capital in, their human property. Um, it allowed them to hold on to it for as long as possible. So for example, in Pennsylvania, you could hold on to your property for 28 years. Um, so you could hold on to your property for up to 28 years. Um, now, we, you know, if you're thinking about the system of slavery, something that is lifelong, you say, oh, 28 years, it's not, okay, that's, that's doable. It's not a lifelong, um, uh, a lifelong experience in slavery. But when we're thinking about the 18th century, I mean, almost 30 years of your life is a significant portion of your life when lifespans are shorter. Were, were they indentured servants or slaves ever paid any money during this time? Uh, they weren't necessarily paid for their labor. They could be given um, little bits of money here and there. Um, George Washington was known for to offer his enslaved um, uh, men and women in the house. Sometimes he would give them uh, monetary gifts on his birthday. Um, and sometimes they would allow people to work on the side to make a little extra money. We see that with some of the enslaved at, at, at Mount Vernon and, but more specifically, in Philadelphia. How old was Ona Judge when uh, George Washington became president? So she was, 
once again, we don't have a, an exact birth date for Ona Judge. We know that she was born sometime between 1773 and 74, which would have been a year or so after her father arrived. Um, so she's about 16 when George Washington becomes president, 15, 16 years old. Um, and so this is in uh, 1789, he's elected president and um, he selects, uh, and Martha selects, a, a number of enslaved people that will journey with them to New York, the first uh, location of the nation's capital, and Ona Judge was one of them. What were the slave laws like in New York at the time? It's, um, you know, I write in the book that it must have been a sort of wildly different um, environment or something that took a great deal of time to get used to for Ona Judge. She was moving basically from Mount Vernon, from Virginia, which was a slave society, right? That um, the majority of, of black people in Virginia were enslaved at this moment. But that's not necessarily the case once she gets to New York. Um, now, there were a great number of, of slaves um, in seven, by the 17, uh, by 1790, uh, there are maybe 11,000 or so um, enslaved people in New York. Um, How many free um, blacks? Great question. Less, far less. So we're looking at maybe 4,000, between four and 5,000. But she might have free. mingled with free she blacks. She most certainly too. did. She most, especially where the location of, of uh, George Washington's home would have been um, near kind of merchants and artisans who were less likely to hold on to slaves. Um, that at that moment, they had, we see a wage labor system really kind of taking over in places like New York. So it's, it's very probable that she interacted um, with enslaved and free black men and women, which would have been a completely different experience from Virginia. And then two years in New York, was it, and then to Philadelphia? Yeah, yeah, they, they eventually uh, move the nation's capital as kind of for all those who've gone to see Hamilton, the, the huge Broadway success. There's a, a sort of wonderful explanation of this kind of bartering that goes on and moving the nation's capital to Philadelphia really for for 10 years. Uh, um, it was kind of a consolation prize that Philadelphians really wanted the nation's capital to be in Philadelphia. Um, however, uh, many of the other who we call founding fathers um, had sort of a different idea about that. And um, so this kind of bartering and negotiation about a nation's capital near the Potomac, closer to George Washington's um, beloved Mount Vernon, and to closer to the other Virginians who were um, extremely powerful at that moment. You know, that kind of just happened in Philadelphia became the sort of 10-year um, resting place for for the nation's capital. And it's where Ona Judge would spend um, close six, seven, six to seven years of her life at a moment where she was kind of growing into adulthood. So one of the things I um, I make certain to, to say in the book is that her time in Philadelphia was instrumental in, in constructing who she was as a woman. Clearly she was enslaved, but she was in the minority and the majority of black people around her were free. Philadelphia had a bigger free black population? Yeah, Philadelphia, you know, Philadelphia had the largest free black population really up until the end of the 1820s or so. Um, 
by the time that Ona Judge arrives in Philadelphia, we're looking at over between six and 7,000 free people, and then that number just continues to kind of rise um, every decade, much faster than what we see in New York, at least until the, the late 1820s. So what she finds when she comes to Philadelphia, when she's brought to Philadelphia, is a real, the kind of beginnings of free black communities, the beginnings of free black churches, of uh, free black entrepreneurs on the streets, and of it, once again, a kind of startlingly, startlingly different from what she would have experienced in Virginia, and even and different from New York as well. Was there an abolition movement in Philadelphia that early? Yeah, there was not the one that we kind of, when we think about abolition, we typically think, oh, William Lloyd Garrison, and um, at least in Philadelphia, we're thinking the Purvises, the, and, and that's a much kind of later, um, 1830s, 1840s um, movement. But there were a significant number of people who had already made the decision that um, slavery was not something that was financially um, feasible for the majority of Philadelphians, but also those in the state. Um, but there was a large Quaker presence that had uh, were really among the first to come out and, and voice their strong opposition to human bondage. Um, so I really think it was the, the Quaker presence um, as well as kind of what was happening with the economy and uh, this transition to a wage labor system that pushed Philadelphia to really be um, the, the kind of bedrock for free black communities in the North. Was there an Underground Railroad presence in Philadelphia? Yeah, so the, when we think of the Underground Railroad, it's really kind of more of a 19th century construction. So, um, And this was the... This is the end of the 1800. 18th. Or? Yeah, this is... So Ona spends really the decade, most of the 1790s in Philadelphia. Um, and so we really don't have this kind of underground railroad as we know it later on to be a sort of loose system of safe houses and players, but clearly there are people who are running away and clearly there are um, free blacks and others, um, sympathetic whites who do eventually come to people's aid like um, on a judge. There's a, a Pennsylvania Abolition Society that is in um, kind of sw full swing, trying to help people become free, but also to try and help people remain free. And that's, you know, the other kind of interesting thing, looking at Ona Judge in Philadelphia in the 1790s when the majority of black people are free, we know that slave catchers were constantly on the prowl. And so one of the questions that we ask with uh, reading Ona's book, uh, the book about Ona, is you know what what does freedom mean when slavery is right next door? Um, how free is free if someone can capture you in the middle of the night and take you to a place you've never been to? If and even if you've been a free person your whole life, the the ability to fight that kind of oppression uh, was slim. And we've seen this recently with sort of films, recent films, 12 Years a Slave, which is which happens much later. But those concerns were still very present at that moment. How big an entourage did George Washington bring north with him? So um, it changed a little bit. When he first went to Philadelphia, uh, to New York rather, uh, he brought seven enslaved uh, people. And it wasn't one of the things I, I kind of argue in the book is that 
that wasn't abnormal. Um, it wasn't abnormal for people to hold slaves in New York. Many did it. All of the, the kind of, many of the leaders in New York at that time had slaves. It became um, more different um, when he came to Philadelphia. And what's interesting is that he, he, the number of enslaved people ticks up a little bit. So he has nine um, enslaved people to, to serve him and the family uh, in Philadelphia and Ona's one of them. Um, what were her jobs? So um, Ona Judge became Martha Washington's sort of top bondswoman, top slave. Um, she was responsible for the very kind of intimate duties of caring for one slave owner. So that could mean um, taking care of her clothing, uh, helping with bathing, brushing hair. She, as a seamstress, she did take care of uh, her clothing as Martha Washington um, moved forward in her husband's uh, presidency. Uh, those responsibilities were, were kind of shipped out, so Ona wasn't necessarily making her clothing anymore, um, but caring for it, cleaning it. Uh, she would also attend um, uh, social calls with, with Martha Washington, so she became a recognizable face uh, among the kind of uh, elite you tell, you tell a story about how was it George Washington went to see a play that he particularly liked, and so he gave a ticket to own a judge to go to see it. Yeah, another he's, night. you know, and it's another example of that shows kind of the difference of life in Philadelphia versus, say, Mount Vernon. When we think about the the arts in the 18th century, right? So um, there are. Um, theaters and circuses that you know that she would attend and this was an instance where he liked the play and wanted to allow Ona and others who were enslaved um, to go see it and so this shows this kind of a taste of freedom you know it's a, a kind of these moments where she tastes freedom here she is going to a play um, money that, that's been paid for, not by her, but by, by Washington. And um, same thing with going to see the tumblers or going to the circus. And Washington writes about this. And we see, we can document it through his household um, accounts, his ledger book, um, that money was given out to, to her and to the others who were enslaved there for this purpose. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it also shows us just how complicated slavery really is at the end of the 18th century especially in places like Philadelphia, where George Washington knows that he is treading lightly around the laws of the state regarding the human property that he's brought with him. Can you explain that, what yeah. the six-month window was? Sure. Well, part of the, the Gradual Abolition Act of 1780 in, in Pennsylvania had said, look, if you are a slaveholder, you live out, you're a non-resident slaveholder, so you're from another location, and you come to Pennsylvania and you bring um, enslaved people with you, you can only stay six months. And if you stay longer than six months with those enslaved people, well, those enslaved people are entitled to their freedom. And so this gave George Washington and others who brought enslaved men and women, it gave them reason to, to pause. Um, and Washington writes about this in his letters and um, between himself and his um, secretary, Tobias Lear. 
and he works very diligently to work around the law. And so he doesn't actually break the law. What he does is he kind of breaks the spirit of the law. So his plan and Martha Washington's, they were both um, aware of what was being done. They would basically cycle their, rotate their slaves out of Pennsylvania, back to Virginia every six months. If they couldn't make a trip to Virginia, if it was too inconvenient, a quick trip to visit friends in Trenton or somewhere else. Over to New Jersey. Over to New Starts Jersey. The clock it, would, again. it would restart the clock. And so, you know, for someone, uh, when we think about this, it's like, okay, well, we, we know that the Washingtons understood the law. And they also understood that they were following the law, but they were completely breaking the, the spirit of it. And they sort of kept a secret? I mean, they didn't want their slaves to know that they were. Oh, no. They, they, this. they did not. Um, they, Washington wrote, you know, we, please, we need to keep this as discreet as possible, and I only want you, Tobias Lear, and Martha Washington to know, he says, we will deceive the public if necessary. So he, he knows what he's doing, and he knows um, that in essence it's wrong, right? It's, in theory it's wrong, and in practice he is still obeying the law because um, Ona Judge was his property, and as long as he le she left Pennsylvania and came back before six months, he was okay. But definitely um, <laughs> there was an interesting take on the law here. Ona was in Philadelphia with her mother and her brother? Not her mother. She was, um, Ona was in Philadelphia with um, a half-brother, her brother Austin, who actually was um, considerably older than her. Um, and he served as a waiter for the Washingtons. He was um, very trusted. He had actually um, was born um, to Betty uh, when she lived at Martha Washington's first husband's home. So uh, Betty and um, Austin were really the only mother and son team that came, when he was a baby at this time, that came to, to Mount Vernon. So Austin, when we think about the presence of Austin at the house, it, it must have been important for Ona to know, you know, here she's hundreds of miles away from, from home, um, but she's with her, her brother. But you, uh, you also write in your book that at one point Austin travels from Philadelphia back to Mount Vernon by himself. By himself. And Is that to reset the clock? It was to reset the clock. Um, That's pretty trusting. It, it is. I mean, and it shows, in a way, it suggests um, how so many slaveholders, the, the Washingtons included, believed that their slaves were um, uh, relatively okay with um, the laws and that they were faithful, that they were not going to attempt to escape. Otherwise, they would never have allowed, they gave Austin money to travel back to Virginia, right, unaccompanied um, on more than one occasion. And so it suggests this kind of odd, the complexity of slavery where we're talking about human beings. Um, but also, you know, Austin was, a some, was somewhat of a safe bet. He had um, a family back at Mount Vernon. And although the majority of runaways, of fugitives in um, the 18th and 19th century were, were young men, things like families kept them tethered to their owners. It kept them thinking, you know, perhaps this is my moment to run away. Perhaps I can take this money and go somewhere else. 
Um, but what would that mean for my wife? What would that mean for my children? Uh, for people who don't know, where was George Washington living when he was president in Philadelphia? Yeah, so um, it's if you're um, familiar with Philadelphia now, it was a stone's throw from where the Liberty Bell and um, Constitution Hall, everything is kind of centered on market. It, it was also called High Street, you know, at the time. So um, there's been some kind of interesting work that's done, archaeological work that's been done on that area. And so um, they've gone to great lengths, the National Parks um, um, Office, they, to create a sort of a replica of what the house would look like. Um, but once again, it was a stone's throw from kind of the seat of government. Um, so it was, it was close by. It was close by everything. Did Ona live in the same house as the president? Yes, she did. Um, we know that um, she slept more than likely in the bedroom adjoining um, George and Martha Washington in, in their bedroom. So she, um, the Washingtons were in charge of uh, or brought two of their grandchildren um, to live with them. And Martha Washington had children um, from her, with her first husband. She had no children with George Washington. So George had no biological heirs, children. Um, however, Martha's children had, um, were deceased and um, she took it upon herself to raise two of her youngest grandchildren. And so she brought them um, with them to New York and then to Philadelphia. And um, Ona, as well as the other enslaved woman who came from Mount Vernon, um, her, whose, name, whose name was Maul, um, they slept, slept in the bedrooms with the children. So they, it was a, a very tight house. There were um, servants and secretaries and slaves and all in a relatively, what we would consider a modest house these, by these, our standards today. Uh, but they all lived in, in close quarters. Now, we're not giving away any secrets about Ona because your title is refers <laughs> to her as a runaway. Right. So what caused her to run away? Right. Um, you know, I think Ona's story is um, fascinating in part because she's, because she does run away. And, um, you know, I think there were a couple of things that came together that made Ona um, make the very kind of bold and daring decision to run away. Um, she had spent a good deal of time with the Washingtons in the North and um, by May of 1796, it was fairly clear that the president was not going to run for another term, that he was retiring. Um, and so everyone uh, at the president's house knew that their time in Philadelphia was, was short-lived, that it was at the most another eight, nine months um, before they would leave. Um, and so with that in mind, it was sort of, okay, well, here she's come into adulthood <clears throat> as um, uh, in Philadelphia. But she also learns that um, she will be uh, given away as a gift to uh, a family member. I'm trying not to tell all of it because I don't want to spoil, um, spoil everything to, to readers. But she learns that um, there will be a transition in her, in, the, in her ownership. And it's that transition that gives her reason to pause and then to make a decision
um, to bolt. How did she get out of town? Yeah, well, it's um, fortunately we have um, two interviews that Ona Judge gave towards the end of her life, and this is, you know, for anyone who d works in early African American history, this is fantastic because we have her voice, and so frequently we don't. Um, How did you find those interviews? Yeah, so <laughs> digging, <laughs> digging in archives, and um, you know, one thing I will say about uh, when I started this project seven, eight years ago, and up to now, is that um, for historians, we've really benefited from digitization of records, and so um, so many databases became. Um, available and then allowed us to search things like newspapers in kind of much more efficient ways that I was able to, some of it was, some of the work was done before the digitization of, of newspapers, but um, kind of digging through papers and then actually um, using index, uh, index and um, digitized papers, I was able to find these interviews. And so suddenly her name popped up in New Hampshire and you said, oh, this is my own a judge. Well, um, yes, not always spelled the right way on occasion. Um, the interview, she gives two interviews towards the end of her life. She gives one with a newspaper called the Granite Freeman um, and then a, another one of, with the Liberator, the most well-known abolitionist newspaper in the 19th so the century. Granite Freeman mm -hmm. is a newspaper that is significant enough that it was digitized <laughs> and, or microfilmed and you no, indexed? No, not that one. <laughs> that one took some, you know, looking through records and, um, and actually tracking down the um, original newspapers um, was part of what I was doing in New Hampshire on research trips. Um, and so to find those, that newspaper, and then the Liberator was searchable. That was a... Um, digitally. So um, to find these two and then to check to see if there were other interviews. The interviews were reprinted in other newspapers, but these are the only locations where she actually gave um, uh, her words, her testimony. Um, and she's very careful to talk about her escape in ways that will not be damaging to those who help her run away. How old was she when she gave the interviews? Oh, she was she was in her seventies, towards the end of her life. So, and the fact that she makes it to her mid seventies is actually, you know, pretty significant. So she's seventy two, seventy three when she's giving these interviews. And how old was she when she ran away? She's twenty two. So this is fifty years later. And, you know, so so much of what we know about Ona Judge um, focuses on this time where she was at Mount Vernon or in Philadelphia or New York with. The Washingtons, but one of the things I argue in the book is that she spends 50 years, half a century, living as a fugitive. And um, it's that period of time that we also have to investigate, and it kind of helps us think about what it must have been like for any person running from a slaveholder who had taken their freedom, what it meant to live in the North knowing that you were a fugitive, knowing that the law was basically against you and could bring you back into captivity at any moment. Well, you say here when she was in New Hampshire, ever vigilant and alert, she knew she'd be a fool to dawdle in narrow streets of her new city for she might be asked to present freedom papers. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they had to have yeah. papers. If, if they were free, if they were born free, they yeah. still had to have papers yeah. if they were free. It, and, you know, it's one of the, the kind of myths that we have of freedom in, in the North um, was like, oh, you're free. There's no, you're in New Hampshire. She she eventually makes her way 
uh, to New Hampshire and um, she finds out quickly that just because you're not in Philadelphia or closer to what we call the South, um, it did not mean that you were um, protected from um, the law and from the expectations, you know, all of the, the northern states just about had slavery at some point, including New Hampshire. And so there were requirements, um, even as slavery disappears in New Hampshire, to prove one's status, right? And um, New Hampshire is no different from other places. And so it reminds us that even though she removed herself from the grasp of the president, she was not ever free. She, and that's in part, the book is called Never Caught because she was not free. She was simply never caught. So uh, without giving away too much, she got away from Philadelphia on a boat. Do you, do you know who helped? I mean, how did she arrange the boat ride? Um, so she was careful once again in her interview. She tells us in her interview who took her away. And she tells us that um, the free black community of Philadelphia helps her. She never names names. The only name she gives us is the name of a captain by the name of John Bowles. And she says in her, her interview that she only named him because she knew he, was, he had died. So he was protected because at that moment, um, the fact that he had helped her arrive in New Hampshire, um, that that was indeed breaking the law, a law that uh, George Washington himself had signed regarding the Fugitive Slave Law of 1793. So she was very careful not to name names. And we see that kind of practice with all fugitives later on in life. Um, we see it with the Frederick Douglass and others who are very cautious about naming names. Could you tell from reading these interviews or anything else that was written about her what she was like, what her personality was like? Um, I don't know that I, I would say it's... I know what she was like or her personality was like from the interviews. I will say that chronicling her life, um, watching her or learning about her move as a teenager, basically, uh, at least what we construct as a teenager now, um, on her own uh, to New York and then Philadelphia and then to find the kind of grit and determination and um, the strength to turn away from everything that she knew for freedom, for a sampling of freedom, that tells us a great deal about her inner core, kind of who she was in terms of her strength and then the life that she lives once she is um, away from the Washingtons. Um, it tells us that she's a, a pretty strong woman and fairly, um, fairly bold. That she, um, it's not that she wasn't scared of the Washingtons. She was. <clears throat> it was, um, she knew that she was technically their property, Martha Washington's property in particular. Um, and she knew that she could be taken back. And once uh, she has a family in New Hampshire, she knows those same laws apply to her children. And so she's, um, I would say I'm, I'm confident in my um, description of her, of her as bold and daring and brave, yet tempered with the knowledge of her vulnerability as a fugitive. 
Well, so she arrives in New Hampshire as a fugitive, 22 years old, something like that, knows nobody. How does she then make contacts, find a job, find housing pretty quickly? Yeah, she's, you know, it, it tells us um, that while there's no kind of underground railroad established at this moment, that there are free blacks in New Hampshire who are willing to help people like Ona Judge and others who um, are fleeing a life in bondage. And so she, it's, it's, she leaves this part out of her interviews in order to protect names. And, um, but it's very clear that her friends in Philadelphia connect her with, with friends, free blacks in, in Portsmouth where she ends up and she is able to um, find lodging and she says she finds lodging at a um, actually it's the records that Washington and his um, companions uh, write about her that she finds lodging at a free Negroes that's what he called it's written uh, in the document that she basically finds free black people and she uh, they agree to to house her and to keep her safe uh, while she looks for employment how did the Washington's react when they realized she was gone? Hmm. You know, George Washington wrote a whole lot, but he didn't write <laughs> what their response was. But we, what we do know is that Ona Judge ran away on a Saturday, Saturday, May 21st. Uh, by Monday, there was a, an advertisement for her in the newspaper. So they were quick to try and reclaim their slave. You have that, uh, the Claypool's American Daily Advertiser. Is that digitized? Yeah. How'd you find no, that? it's not, it's not digitized, but, um, uh, well, it became, uh, Claypool's wasn't, but the Philadelphia Gazette was another newspaper that um, had her advertisement for many years. <clears throat> excuse me, the advertisement appeared uh, kind of mislabeled. Some had argued that uh, that it was in the Pennsylvania Gazette. And so I kept, I was like, okay, well, I'm looking through every, every issue of the Pennsylvania Gazette, and I can't find this advertisement anywhere. And there was a little note in some little file at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and, you know, that said this, and I was like, yeah, let me, let me look through the other newspapers. So this was kind of good old-fashioned homework that historians do, looking through every microfilm reel. Um, and so I found it in the Philadelphia Gazette. Um, so, and some of these papers were short, shorter-lived. Um, and so what I found interesting was that both, the, both newspapers um, advertised for her fairly quickly. They advertised for her for more than a week. Um, and you know, when I first saw the advertisement, I was like, really? Why is the president advertising for one runaway enslaved person when there are 300 um, or so people left at Mount Vernon? Was Ona Judge really that um, important to the Washingtons that they had to get her back? Ten dollar um, reward. There's a ten dollar the cost of a barrel of a barrel of flour. Um, so another point reason when you when you ask, well, you look through these newspapers, are they boring? Well, they're not boring because that when I said, oh well, he offered a ten dollar reward. What can we buy with ten dollars at that moment? You can buy a barrel of flour, right? So that's what he's offered forth um, in terms of compensation for returning Ona. What I found interesting was that the ads were slightly different. The first ads um, said, 
uh, that they would give that reward to anyone, white or black, who, and that's what it said, white or black, who returned her. That the language changed midway through the week, so there was no reference to race at all. Um, but it was very clear that they knew perhaps they could get help from the free black community in terms of her whereabouts uh, or others. But I thought to myself, why is why are they so very um, adamant about reclaiming this one one enslaved woman? And it kind of became clear over the course of the research that um, Martha Washington was deeply offended by. Um, Ona Judge's escape, that um, George writes on several occasions that he wants, he's going after Ona because his wife misses her and needs her and is, has been um, inconvenienced by her absence. And so um, at that moment, we, we understand that the sensibility of slaveholders is always kind of um, under attack when uh, an enslaved person runs away. It's a suggestion that they can't control their, their human property. Now, uh, we won't have time to tell the whole story, but will you at least tell the story about the time um, <laughs> Ona runs into the senator's daughter in New Hampshire? Yeah. And what are the odds of that? Yeah, it's, um, you know, one of the things that makes Ona Judge different from so many other fugitives is that she was a recognizable person because she had been connected to the Washingtons. So for many fugitives who escaped, I mean, it was incredibly difficult, and the odds of you living through um, a journey north uh, were slim. But um, for Ona, she had this other marker, a physical marker that people knew her face. And so um, she spends some time, when she's in New Hampshire, she knows that um, George and Martha are friends with and know the governor, um, the senators, and she's, she's known. And um, the day comes where she has to kind of reckon with the fact that she is known and she's spotted. Um, and it's once again at this moment where she, her kind of steely nerves um, allow her to maneuver and negotiate and once again not be caught. Um, but that encounter with those who know the Washingtons um, puts her in the most vulnerable of positions because George and Martha are alerted fairly quickly that Ona was in New Hampshire. And they send somebody to try to persuade her to come back, not forcibly bring her back. Um, well, <laughs> there, there, there are several attempts to, to go and to, to recapture Ona, some through cabinet members and um, federal officials, um, which once again is another violation of the Fugitive Slave Law, blatant violation. Um, the president wrote uh, that he was very anxious to have this taken care of discreetly um, and would not be interested in using magistrates and lawyers, all of the things that the Fugitive Slave Law required, uh, that he simply wanted to get Ona back as quickly and quietly and as, as, uh, as inexpensively as possible. Um, and that's something to think about, that Ona Judge, although she was owned technically by Martha Washington, he was the observer of the state. He took care of the estate. And any property, including human, human property that was lost or damaged, would, would hold 
Washington liable for, for that expense, so. Does Ona Judge have any living descendants? Um, she does not direct living descendants. She, um, I won't tell too much about uh, her life in New Hampshire. Did you find any relatives? There are relatives. There are people who um, have written to uh, Mount Vernon and um, claim to be connected to, um, not necessarily to own a judge, but to family members who are, who are related to own a judge. So no direct descendants, meaning from children, um, but from siblings and um, cousins, yes. Did you find her grave? You know, I wish I, I believe I know where she's, she, uh, her final resting place was, and um, it's on private property, so I'm careful to um, protect the privacy of the, the homeowners, but um, towards the end of her life, I was able to track where she lived and um, the stone cottage that she inhabited is, is no longer there, but markers, there were six people living in that house and there are, there was sonar um, uh, uh, machinery that came in to kind of do some detective work and there are six bodies that were buried um, in the location, very close to the location of the home. There's a, um, not a headstone, but a placard of swords, a crude one for one of the members of that household. And so I'm fairly certain that I know where she is today and I'd, I'd love to, to know more. If you could talk to her, what would you ask her? Oh, I would ask her, is she happy with, with the book? Is she happy that, um, you know, she worked, she spent so many of her, her years living as a fugitive in secrecy, um, and now here we are at this moment in 2017 where hopefully all of America will know who Ona Judge was and, um, you know, no more does she, no more is she in the shadows, but does she, is she happy with, with everyone knowing her story and how it helps the rest of us understand race and slavery and um, womanhood in the 18th and 19th century? We've been speaking with Erica Armstrong Dunbar. She is the author of this book, Never Caught the Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave, Ona Judge. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.